Welcome, everyone, and thanks for listening to the Let's Brief It podcast, the podcast made for law students by law students. My name is Ueda Fabiola, an LLM student from Georgetown University Law Center. And I'm Andrew Nettles, and I'm a 2L at George Washington University. And in today's episode, we're going to be exploring white-collar defense with Professor Ira Sorkin. Professor Sorkin has spent his entire legal career practicing in New York City. He is currently a partner at Minson Gold in Midtown Manhattan and is also an adjunct professor at GW Law's Study in New York program. Following his graduation from George Washington University Law School in 1968, Professor Sorkin served in the U.S. Attorney's Office in New York, eventually becoming the Deputy Chief of its criminal division. He then pivoted into the Securities and Exchange Commission, where he served as Director of the New York Office. In 1997, he began his practice in white-collar defense. Professor Shorkin has had the distinction of having represented many famous and infamous individuals. For instance, he has represented Rupert Murdoch, Bernard Madoff, and Jordan Belfort, which I'm certain our younger audience members will be well familiar with. Professor Shorkin also devotes the remainder of his time to his family and various philanthropic pursuits. Thank you so much for joining us today. Sure. There's only one, uh, two points I want to correct. One, when I left law school, I started at the Securities and Exchange Commission as a trial attorney, and then went to the U.S. Attorney's Office, then went into private practice, then went back to the SEC as director of the New York office, then uh, went into private practice again and was on Wall Street for a little while as the chief legal officer of a member firm of the New York Stock Exchange. Then I went back to private practice. And as for representing Rupert Murdoch, I personally did not, but my firm represents Fox and News Corp. And back then, I represented the New York Post, which was owned by News Corp in a libel action, but I did not represent Mr. Murdoch personally. Thank you for the correction. There you go. There's a proof. Wikipedia is not always accurate. We appreciate those corrections. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us today. Can you please give the audience an overview of the primary responsibilities of a defense lawyer and what is something that every law student interested in white collar should know? Let me start with the second part. If a law student is interested in going into criminal defense, because white collar is a misnomer. While in the U.S. Attorney's Office, we prosecuted a number of people who appeared in the movie Goodfellas. I'm sure you've all seen Goodfellas in a stock fraud case. And you can't really say that these individuals were white collar. They were members of and high ranking members of various mafia families in New York. So it's a misnomer to say white collar because white collar defense can include everything from securities fraud, insider trading, perjury, healthcare fraud, you name it. And it covers the whole panoply of Title 18 of the United States Code. As for your first question, I think it's important to understand that what got me into criminal defense was the excitement that I had as a student, you call them rising two now. So I was a first-year law student. I spent the summer of 1967 as an intern in the district attorney's office in Brooklyn. In the summer of 66, I was an intern in the DA's office in Brooklyn. And the summer of 67, I was an intern in the U.S. attorney's office, having spent time in the narcotics unit and in the securities frauds unit. And quite frankly, I became fascinated with the securities fraud aspect because the defendants, for the most part, were very smart. The lawyers were very good, and it was a very interesting area. 
to get involved in. That's not to say that when I became an assistant U.S. attorney, I didn't try bank robbery, narcotics cases, mail theft, and so forth. But if you're interested in doing defense work, I can't impress upon all of you to try to get involved in internship in a prosecutor's office if you're still in law school. If you're not in law school and you've graduated and you're interested in criminal defense, it's a very good idea to try to get in with a prosecutor's office, whether it's a state office or a federal office. Because as a prosecutor, you're going to learn things that will be invaluable to you as a prosecutor. And if you leave the prosecutor's office, it will be invaluable to you as a defense lawyer, if that's what you want to do. The point I'm trying to make is that the best defense lawyers, for the most part, there are some exceptions, were former prosecutors. And the prosecutors at the federal and state level who hold high-ranking positions were at one time defense lawyers. So yes, there is a revolving door, and I'm very much of the view that the revolving door is very important because the better prosecutor you are, you'll be a better defense lawyer and vice versa. But you know, it's not taught in law school. You take courses in criminal procedure and criminal law, but actually being in a courtroom and working a case with a prosecutor or against a prosecutor is really the best experience you could have if you want to go into criminal defense work. What are some of the essential ethical considerations or professional standards that defense lawyers such as yourself have to uphold while representing their clients? I've, I've always been of the view that if you meet a potential client for the first time, if you get 65% of the truth as to what they claim they did or did not do, you're ahead of the game. Because most defendants who were involved in sophisticated areas that they're under investigation about think they're smarter than their lawyers because they've always been involved in dealing with the public and making false claims, showing what smart people they are and the like. And so there has to develop a relationship between the client, if the potential client becomes your client, and you as a defense lawyer. Because quite frankly, as a number of movies say, the lawyer says, I'm the only friend you have. Okay, The prosecutors are against you. Witnesses may be against you. Co-defendants may be against you if they decide to cooperate. So you need to develop a trust with your client where he trusts you. Doesn't necessarily mean he has to follow your advice. But your role as a defense lawyer is to lay out all the options to the potential client, now a client, and in laying out all the options, you need to advise him of if you go this way, this potentially could happen. If you go another route, that could potentially happen. So every client has to be told the pluses and the minuses with respect to the choices that he makes. For example, he may decide that he wants to fight the case. He may decide that if he's convicted after a trial and the government has proved its case beyond a reasonable doubt, the sentencing guidelines will kick in in a federal case. Uh, unlike the state cases where you can pretty much work out the deal before he goes to trial in order to make the decision on his part, 
whether to plead or not plead. But you need to explain to the client, this is what could happen if you're convicted. And of course, if you're acquitted, you can go home. But you must be straight with the client. Ethically, you've got a responsibility to tell them potential good news and the potential bad news. You can't sugarcoat it so that at some point in time, the client has to understand that the good news is I could be acquitted or if it's an investigation, I won't be charged. Uh, on the other hand, if I am charged, this is what could happen to me in terms of sentencing. So that's really the key. You've got to be straight with your client. And ethically, you cannot in any way sugarcoat it or mislead the client. He's got to know no different than a doctor who explains whether it's a serious operation, a heart transplant, a liver transplant, or cancer treatment. This is what could happen. And you've got to be straight with the patient. You've got to be straight with the client. Interesting. So we are in a digital era. And I'm curious to know in what ways would you say today's technological ad advancement have influenced your practice as a, as a defense lawyer? Well, obviously, I'm pretty old. And I've been doing this for about mm, 54 years, 55 years, both as a defense lawyer an in-house lawyer, and a prosecutor. And the law has changed, not necessarily the law, but the technology has made things at times very difficult and at the same time very easy. When I started out, the use of computers was rarely used. If you asked a brokerage firm for information about particular trades, they would write it out for you on what was called blue sheets. It would be hand written out and forwarded to the SEC if the SEC was involved in investigation. Now, brokerage firms hit a button, and the button in a millisecond will print out, and I'm, of course, overstating it because I am generally computer illiterate and have a lot of trouble understanding computers and crypto and everything else that the law has taken over or has been involved in the practice of law. But today, technology has made investigations a lot more simpler. And at the same time, investigations have created situations where lawyers have to have an understanding of cell phones, fingerprints, but more so DNA. And there are many, many, many different things that prosecutors and investigators can use during an investigation. And uh, we could spend a long time talking about how investigators, FBI, DEA, IRS, postal inspectors, and the like, use technology to investigate cases. So yes, the practice of law has, uh, has changed dramatically. You've got cell phone towers. You can place people in specific places at times by the use of the cell phone and the towers and so forth. We never used to have those. And uh, today, that has been very important, both to a defense lawyer, to understand what the government is investigating, and to the prosecutors and investigators to help them figure out whether or not there's been a crime, and if, in fact, there was a crime, who was responsible. So technology has just changed it entirely. What's AI going to do? I couldn't even begin to tell you. I don't understand AI. No one seems to understand AI. 
Indeed, in the crypto case involving uh, Sam Bankman-Fried, the judge, Judge Kaplan, who was a very, very experienced judge, a very good judge, a very smart judge, made a comment I read the other day where somebody said, whether it was a defense lawyer or not, that uh, crypto is something that you may not understand. And apparently the judge said, that's true of a lot of us, or something to that effect. So we're in a whole new world. What would you say, if anything, is the toughest part of your current practice dynamic? And if you could change it, would you? The toughest part of the practice is less so with the client than it is with the public. I have represented people who have done some bad things. I have also been involved in people who I have represented who were never charged. The great success of a defense lawyer is to keep your client's name out of the newspaper. There are cases that I was involved with and that many of my contemporaries are involved with where the client was under investigation or clients and the government, for whatever reason, because it didn't have evidence or whatever, chose not to charge. You'll never know about those cases. Those cases will not make the newspapers. Holding those cases where somebody stands up on the steps of a courthouse, a lawyer or a client, and says, I've been acquitted. I didn't do what the government said I did. The indictment charged me and I was not convicted. But the public has to understand that the role of the prosecutor is to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. The fact that a client says, I was not convicted, doesn't mean he didn't do or she didn't do what the client was alleged to have engaged in by means of the indictment. All it means is that the government didn't prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the individual did not do what he or she was charged with. Doesn't mean they didn't do it. It means that the government didn't prove it. And the role of the defense lawyer, and this is really at the guts of what we do, is to force the government to prove its case beyond a reasonable doubt, to convince 12 jurors in a federal case that the charges we're not proven beyond a reasonable doubt. That's the role we play. We provide the constitutional bedrock to clients. Our role is to not in any way convince a jury that the client didn't do it. Our role is to convince the jury that the government didn't prove that the client did it beyond a reasonable doubt. And so my role is to protect the constitutional rights of the client and to force the government to prove its case beyond a reasonable doubt. That's the role we play. And unfortunately, there are many, many, many individuals who don't understand our role. And that's where it becomes very difficult. When the lawyer is accused of such things, how can you represent this person who is charged with terrible, terrible crimes? Well, we can represent them because the Constitution gives us the right to represent them and gives us the tools and the means to represent them, not to convince a jury that he didn't or she didn't do it, but to convince the jury that the government didn't prove that he or she did it. Let me give you one or two very good examples of this. In 1770, John Adams, our second president, defended a bunch of British soldiers 
who fired on some colonists. He was not a very popular guy for defending the British soldiers, but that was the role. And there have been many, many defense lawyers who represented some very, very difficult people who were charged with crimes. And the defense, the bar, the number of lawyers, it happened in particular with the Madoff case, where many, many emails that I received were from individuals who not only went after me with anti-Semitic comments, because Madoff was Jewish, I'm Jewish, they didn't understand how I could represent, and this is the second part, how I could represent someone who did such terrible things as Bernie Madoff. And the short answer is, that's the role that defense lawyers play. We don't make moral judgments. Did he do bad things? Arguably, he did. Did he admit to doing bad things? He pleaded guilty. But if he had not pleaded guilty and chose to go to trial, and there were a variety of reasons why he chose not to go to trial, uh, my role would be to force the government to try to prove that what is alleged that he did, in fact, he did, and to convince a jury beyond a reasonable doubt that he did. That puts aside what the defendant did or didn't do. That's not my role. I don't make moral judgments about what a client does or doesn't do. That's not my role. If I made moral judgments, I could be a judge, a jury, defense lawyer, prosecutor at the same time and decide as King Solomon from the Bible did, that's the decision. Or as the church did back in the Middle Ages, church made the decision. If you ever saw the, the movie uh, The Hunchback of Notre Dame or Esmeralda is arrested for killing a soldier and they put a knife on the table, closed her eyes, they got blindfolded her. And if she touched the knife, she was guilty. Bam, that was it. If she did not touch the knife, which was the burnt weapon, she's innocent. We don't have a system like that, thankfully. I think that pretty much wraps up our episode today. It was such a pleasure having you. Thank you so much for joining us. Let's Brief It is a podcast created for law students, by law students. Thank you so much to the DC Bar communities for hosting us today. Thank you so much, Professor. The DC Bar law student community strives to engage and support law students before you graduate and expose you to the tangible benefits of joining the DC Bar and DC Bar communities. Curated programming allows law students to participate in leadership trainings, substantive content programming, networking with practicing attorneys in fields of interest, writing opportunities, and other activities designed to expand your legal education beyond the classroom. Make an investment in your legal career by joining the law student community. To learn more, visit us at www.dcbar.org or email communities at dcbar.org.